Colossians chapter 1. We started here last week uh, in this little two-week stretch where I'm preaching. Uh, that gives Danny a little bit of chance to rest on the end of his vacation. If he was preaching today, he'd be like, it'd be rough. So uh, that was the end of his vacation, but we're glad they're back. Um, so we're just in Colossians 1 for a couple weeks, and then Danny will be back preaching next week. Uh, and we looked last week at the beginning of Colossians 1, where we learned that God's good news is effective. It does its work. It's reaching the world. It's changing you. And uh, that's why we sang at the beginning this morning uh, that God is mighty to save. And that's what we saw last week uh, in God's word. And then uh, Paul prays, the author of Colossians, he prays for the people in that church in verses 9 through 14. And then we are going to look at uh, verses 15 through 23 this morning. Let's pray together, and then we'll read God's word and study it together. God, we thank you for your word that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We confess, uh, like Peter, our faith is faltering and failing. We often get overwhelmed by the wind and the waves of our lives. But you are great and glorious, and, and you never falter on the water. You are always there. Even when Peter cried out, you reached out and rescued him. We thank you that you have reached out and rescued many of us from our own sin and our own ways and our own destruction and even the wrath of God. And you have saved us. And we thank you that you are continuing to grow and build our faith. God, we pray if there's anyone here this morning who has never trusted in Jesus as their own Savior, they've never put their faith in him, that maybe even today would be that day. But we pray that you would increase all of our faith as we hear from you and your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll notice in the backdrop of the slides today that there's a sunset. And um, one of my favorite places to see a sunset in the valley is Potato Hill. How many of you have been to Potato Hill? Do you know where that is? Okay, that's lame. How many of you have been to, okay, no. <laughs> Potato Hill is, uh, if you're driving up to Suncrest, I'm totally bad directionally. It's kind of like that way. Um, there's that road that kind of snakes up the side of the hill up to that point of the mountain, kind of the southern point of the mountain. And there's a walkout. How many of you have been to um, Ensign Peak, like up north side of the city? Okay, that one's work. That's like a real, you know, half mile of sweat and blood and tears, right, to get up there. Uh, Potato Hill is for the more faint of heart, like me, and uh, it's just a little walkout. And from that point on the south part of the, you can see the whole South Valley, and um, it is beautiful as the sun sets. In fact, during plant camp, I usually take some of the teens and adults that are here up the hill there, uh, and we, we go up there, and we pray for the valley, and we're there as the lights are coming on in the city, and the sun is setting. You can see over the Ochre Mountains. It's spectacular, right? What makes a great sunset? Well, sometimes, you know, with the clouds and the way the sun sets, uh, maybe even with the smoke, maybe that's helping us a little bit with sunsets here and there. You get amazing colors in a beautiful sunset, don't you? Right? Uh, your view is a huge help. Some of you like to go to national parks and other places, and there are just spots where the sunset is. You, you couldn't even describe it, right? You try to take a picture of it, and you're like, somebody way better than me is going to have to take this picture because mine is just terrible, right? Um, and uh, sometimes it's the surroundings that make it. Uh, I love being up on Potato Hill and just seeing the lights of the city and thinking about all the people who live here and what God's doing in our valley. Um, but that, those things all combined, you could probably think of a few more. The company, right? The, the event, maybe there's a proposal going on and that's a moment in front of the sunset that's just serene. Um, you can think of all those factors that make a great sunset. Uh, I'm into sports. I thought a little bit today about what makes a great athlete. Um, in fact, there was a hockey player 
30 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, named Wayne Gretzky. Anybody heard of Wayne Gretzky? All right, thank you, thank you. Uh, Wayne Gretzky's nickname was The Great One. That's what they called him. Because his skills were so great, but if you know a great athlete, it goes beyond their skills, their focus, their endurance, probably their influence. If we broadened it out to think about what makes a great leader, it's interesting, leaders like to call themselves the great. You know, think about Russian leaders who are like, Peter the Great, you know, I'm going to be the Great. They like to brand themselves that way. Alexander the Great, if you think back in history, what makes a great leader? Um, their purpose, their ability to communicate, their courage, their influence. And when you interact with greatness, you're impacted by it, aren't you? Whether it's that beautiful sunset that you just stand in awe of or wonder, or if you're in the presence of a great leader or someone who demonstrates those sort of qualities, it affects you. But as we come to Colossians 1 this morning, we come to ultimate greatness. We, we come to something that ought not be compared with a sunset, or a hockey player, or even a world leader. We come to see Jesus in his ultimate preeminent greatness. Would you read these verses with me and just stand in awe of Jesus? He, Colossians 1.15 says, is the image of the invisible God. He is fully God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, here it is, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things. If you don't know what that word reconcile means, it means to make peace, to restore, to heal. All things, whether on, he or on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Don't miss this. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. In the verses that we read here, we are in the presence of true greatness. The unmatched greatness of Jesus. And when we really let our hearts dwell in the greatness that he is, it settles us down. We calm down. We rest. We sit secure and our faith is renewed. Let's look at four ways that Jesus is great. Four big ways. Could I say it that way? And I tried to make these as simple as possible. If you know me at all, I kind of like to keep things simple. And that's actually pretty challenging doing this passage because it's so big and vast and rich, right? It's a little bit like, like looking at the Grand Tetons and going, those are mountains. 
Well, yes, they are, but, right? So, so this, this passage, you could, you could park your heart here for quite a while and just kind of bask in it. But we're going to hit these four things, and I've tried to, make, tried to distill them down so that you can uh, take them home with you pretty easily. The first is this, Jesus became something. This, that's kind of vague. We, we could almost say that Jesus became nothing in a way. Jesus became a man. That's what verse 15 is telling us. He, the Bible says, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, that's not telling us that Jesus was the first one created. That's telling us that when he came to earth as a baby, as a man, he became the supreme part of creation. Oftentimes in the Bible, that word firstborn is not just used for timing, it's used for rank. And that's what we have here. When Jesus came, even in his infant state, in that moment, in a barn, in the middle of nowhere, in a manger, he was great. And that's why the verse goes on to say he was the firstborn of all creation. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. For in Jesus, just, just next page over, for in Jesus, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There's the picture. Now listen. If you try to get your mind wrapped around every implication and nuance, if you try to take your limited human brain and fully understand what it means that God became man, you'll get a headache. And I can promise you, you won't ever figure it all out. But here's what the Bible teaches us clearly. Jesus was fully God. Maybe I should say it this way. Jesus is fully God. I say was in the sense that that was uh, his origin. Now, Jesus didn't have a starting date. Remember in John chapter 8, he said, before Abraham was, I what? I am. That goes all the way back to what God said in the burning bush, doesn't it? I am. So Jesus has forever existed. He's eternal. He's fully God, God the Son. That's who Jesus is. But Jesus became fully man. We, we love to tell rags-to-riches stories, don't we? About someone who came from nothing and they ended up in, in some level of greatness. Whether it's athletic or in the business world, right? Um, or maybe even in the political world. We're like, man, that guy came from nothing. You know what the story of Jesus is? It's a story of riches to rags. It's a story of having everything, being in the glory of heaven. Having perfect relationships and everything as, as spectacular as it could be. And listen, we don't even begin to comprehend what that means. Right? Eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, the Bible said, says, the things that are laid up for those who love him. That's why if you read the book of Revelation, it says a lot of things are like this. They're kind of like this. John is seeing something he can't even explain in human terms. And that's where Jesus was. That's where Jesus existed. That was everything Jesus had known until he became a baby in a manger. He became Emmanuel. God with us. That change of location, that change of station, that change of reality, we don't even understand the vastness of that. And yet Jesus came as a baby and he experienced pain and suffering and disease and betrayal. He became a man. I just turned 40 this year. They say that's, it all changes. 50 maybe, I don't know. 
But there's like all these realities of being human, aren't there, that are hard? And some of them you experience at a young age, some of you experience at an older age. There are challenges of relationships. Or like here's Jesus trying to, trying to take 12 disciples and train them to, to take his truth when he dies. And he's just dealing with people. Jesus' greatness is wrapped up in the fact that he became a man. Philippians tells us that he humbled himself, became a man, became obedient to death on a cross. By the way, that's why Jesus became a man. He didn't become a man to to teach us good things or be a good example. He became a man to live and die and pay for sin. Jesus is great because of what he became. But secondly, these verses tell us that Jesus made everything. Jesus' greatness is wrapped up in the fact that he became something. He became a man. But verse 16 says this, For by him all things were created. Think about the vastness of what's included in that phrase. Everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the creator of everything. It's one of the first evidences of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit is right in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God, plural, created the heavens and the earth. One God, three persons. The Spirit, the Bible tells us, hovered over the face of the waters. Genesis chapter 1. Jesus made everything. I mean, I mean we, we cloud in greatness someone who creates a company. Right? I mean, like Jeff Bezos is like, whoa. He made one company in one place that will be gone someday. How many of you shop at Sears? That's what I thought. Do you know there was a day when Sears and Roebuck were the thing? And, it, and if you wanted anything, you got it from them. And by the way, there was a day before that when the store in town was the thing. And the guy who owned and ran that was the man. And, and we bask in this greatness, and it's, this, it's so tiny compared to this. Jesus made everything. And by the way, he made things you and I can't even see. Did you see that? It goes, it, the verses tell us he made things visible and invisible. There's a whole spiritual realm and world that we don't see with our human eyes. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, there's a, there's a ruling world that Jesus created. By the way, Jesus even created the things that became evil. He, he created angels that fell. He created Satan. He created everything. I told my wife that I was going to keep this uh, PowerPoint simple, and, or Google Slides simple, and there, I told her there weren't any pictures, and she audibly groaned. I don't know if that's because I'm boring without pictures, or I don't know. She was like, no pictures? It wasn't even Timothy, it was my wife. She's like, no pictures. I'm like, read your Bible, love Jesus. No, no. So this morning, I got up early. (laughs) This is all I got. This is your one picture for the day. It's actually of a hike that we took the Monday after we brought the teens back from camp in our exhausted state. On Monday morning, we we packed up not very early. Might have been Monday afternoon by the time we got out there. 
And we hiked up to Willow Lake. Willow Lake is up Big Cottonwood Canyon. And uh, it's right across from Solitude Ski Area. It's about, I don't know, it's probably 40, 40 minutes from here, 45 minutes. And it, it's a little kind of out and back two-mile hike. It's a loop. And it's got just enough elevation change and activity that it will wear Tim out. That's one of our goals on all hikes now. <laughs> the goal is that at night, Tim will sleep. Some of you understand that. Some of you don't. It's okay. It's part of our goal. It's sinister parenting. We admit it. But it's beautiful. And uh, we didn't know this, but we actually hit it at a really neat time. Because in the middle of June, up in the canyons, the wildflowers are blooming. And so this is a, a hike. It goes up, I don't know, a few hundred vertical feet. It's kind of a gradual climb. You can see that on the right there. There's Tim and I. And, um, but as we're walking up through the hike, uh, I just looked over, and there's, there's little bluebell flowers in full bloom. They're, they're, they're literally this big in all their splendor. And, and over on the other side, there are some orange flowers, and there were purple flowers, and there were yellow flowers, and they just kind of dotted the hike. And we're in the middle of this aspen grove, and so there's aspens everywhere, and there's, there's you know, ground cover, and there's enough shade that even though it was warm, it wasn't like scorching hot like it was down in, on the surface of the sun in the valley. And, and we're weaving our way up there. It's probably about, I don't know, it probably took us 45 minutes to hike up to the lake, because it was uphill. Then we went around the lake, you can see it, back through an aspen grove, and hike back down. And, and the whole time that we're hiking, I'm just like, this is incredible. And besides the moments, I was like, Tim, hurry up, right? I was like, this is incredible. And then if you wanted to, you could turn and look across, you know, the, the road that runs up Big Cottonwood Canyon, and there was the, the magnitude, the grandeur of Solitude Ski Area. And so there's this minute, spectacular beauty in those flowers and in the insects and ants and all that stuff. And then there's this grandeur of the mountains. Jesus made it all. And sometimes we just need to stop and look around a little bit. And that's this tiny a slice of Utah. I've lived in Utah now for about four years, and people still tell me where they're from, and I give them a blank stare. And then they tell me where it's near, and sometimes I still give them a blank stare, right? But, but we're not talking about the national parks, and we're not talking about going up north to Bear Lake, and we're not talking about the expanse of this country. And some of you who have traveled the world have seen slivers of it other places, haven't you? And yet none of us, even with all the video and all the resources, none of us really gets it what it means that Jesus made everything. He is great. I can't draw a good person in 2D on paper. Just dwell on how amazing that is. The verse goes on to say this, and he is before all things. He preceded it all, which by the way makes sense if he made it, that he was before it. He's eternal. We talked about that from John chapter 8, the I am. He made everything. He's always existed. He's eternal. He was before everything, but then the verse goes on to say, and in him, everything holds together. I like to buy things new. Some of you think that's the most foolish thing in the world. It's okay. I can't fix anything. So, 
So at least it starts off working. But over my life, I've become more and more thankful for people who can maintain and fix and restore and help with things. Because we all need them, don't we? We need mechanics. We need people who come and fix our fridge when the ice maker isn't working. We need people who can, you know, maintain a building like this. It's a great skill to have. Jesus maintains the universe. The Bible tells us he holds it together by the word of his power. Some of you are overwhelmed by maintaining your home and your lawn. I know I am sometimes. Like, what? Those windows need to be fixed? That driveway? That, my, my maintenance of my tiny little kingdom. Too big. Jesus holds the universe. And the more scientists zoom out and see the, the galaxies and the stars, and the, they just go, it's so big, we can't even categorize how big it is. I mean, does any of you know what a light year is? It's the amount of distance light covers in a year. It's vast. It's glorious. And Jesus maintains it all. He made everything. Colossians goes on. Look at verse 18. Jesus founded something. He became something. He made everything. He founded something. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus left something behind, didn't he? He left behind an organization, a body, these verses tell us. He started something. See, greatness always makes an impact. And Jesus' impact has continued for thousands of years. Do you know that many religions have risen and fallen in that time frame? And I know that the idea of the church has a different meaning in this valley than it does in most of the rest of the country. Guys, tell you something? Jesus started the church. How'd he do it? He rose from the dead. He, he trained the disciples, and those 12 went out into the world. And the good news that we talked about last week just spreads and spreads and spreads and spreads. And thousands of years later, it would be hard to argue that anything has done more good for the world that we live in than the church that Jesus started. It's doing great things in this valley. And we're watching it. We get to be a part of it. It's interesting that these verses remind us who's actually in charge. Do you see that in verse 18? And he is the what? Head of the body. You ever heard that joke about uh, marriages? That husbands are the head, but what? Have you ever heard this? The wife is the neck that turns the head, right? Like, anyway, what the Bible's telling us here is that Jesus is in no debatable way fully in charge. We say here at Gospel Hope that we are a church that is pastor-led, deacon-served, and congregationally ruled. And we think that accurately reflects the way that the Bible has designed a church to function. But, but don't get it wrong. Jesus is the head. We're, we're Jesus-led. To, to, to a large degree, we're Jesus-served. And we're Jesus-ruled. Don't ever begin to think that because we introduce the pastors every Sunday, that this is our church, that we own it in some way, that, that we're the people you should be bowing down to. That is not the case. We are sinful human beings just like you are. We have our issues, we have our struggles, and not one of us is Jesus. 
And we often have problems in church because we start thinking that certain people in our lives are Jesus. Nobody you know is him. In fact, when you start to think that way and start to feel that way about someone, you'll be deeply, deeply disappointed because this is Jesus' place. His authority ought to be the ultimate one you're submitting to. He's the leader. He founded it. He continues to lead and guide it. And Ephesians 4 says that our whole goal as a church is that we might grow together in the word, in prayer, in our walk with God. We might grow to a place where we begin to fit our head. It's like we have a perfect head and the body's a mess. By the way, local churches are messes. We welcome your mess. Gospel hope recognizes that marriages struggle, that uh, dads struggle, that kids, although mine is tremendous, a kids struggle. Sometimes I feel like God is like illustration number one, right? Like, we love to follow Jesus together in the mess. One of the worst things we can do is cover up and hide our mess. We're all sinners trying to follow Jesus together. And we want to do that because this is his place. And it's not just here, by the way, all over this valley, all over the world for thousands of years. What Jesus started has continued and grown. It never failed and disappeared for a thousand years. Why? Because Jesus sustains it. It's his church. What else? Jesus fixes everything. Look at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Remember, he made it all, he restores it all. How'd he do it? Making peace by the blood of his cross. Genesis 3 tells us the awful story of how the first people did what we all would have done, by the way, and turned away from God. Broke the only rule he gave them, and the whole world fell into sin, the curse, and chaos to some degree. It's interesting that these verses come right before we probably get back into Romans 8. You know what Romans 8 tells us about the whole creation? And I don't even fully grasp this, but I'll tell you what God has told us. It groans. You ever groaned? Something in your life was just so, oh, I've groaned. You know, the Bible tells us that the whole creation is groaning because it sits under the weight of sin. Do you know that we have actually never seen animals in harmony like God planned it? We, I told you last week, we planted a garden. I'll be thrilled to see a garden without weeds. The Bible tells us in Genesis 3 that, that the curse men affects our work. Do you know that that affects your work whether you work on a computer or whether you, you know, work in a garden? How many of you have experienced frustration at work? <laughs> right? Ladies, it tells us, and many of you work, so you experience that too, but it tells us that there's an impact in having children. I don't know how often we prayed. We are, we are on pregnancy number six, Right? right? Not our family, but we're, our church, our COVID babies, right? We're number six. We are through five, and God has graciously led through them all, and we have five healthy babies, praise the Lord, that have been born since January, February, I think, right in that window, right? And we've got one more on the way, Lord willing, in the next month. 
But pregnancy is hard. And despite all the efforts of modern medicine, you can't make it unpainful. You can't make it not have lasting effects. It's hard. The whole world was affected by sin. And you know what these verses are telling us? Jesus, through his cross, is going to fix it all. Come on. Think about that. When I ran uh, an operations team at a local Christian school in the valley, uh, we used to play the little peg and cat song. Um, there's a blast from somewhere. So peg and cat, little kids TV show, they used to sing when they would fix something. They used to sing problem solved, the problem is solved, we solve the problem, problem solved. So we made that our little mantra for the team I ran. And if we had a little victory, we would play the little peg and cat song. I don't know why. It was goofy. It was fun. And, and we, got a, we, we owned it, right? It was a thing. I love solving problems. And it just it gets me so excited. Um, our sign-out front got pulled down about two weeks ago. The plant campers were here taking their big picture out front. Right? That's a group that comes in from all over the country to help and serve. And so there are a hundred of them. They want to take a picture in front of the church. The sign was in the way, so they took it down. And they took their pictures, beautiful, but I knew how much work it took to put that dumb sign up. So there was some sadness in my heart. So we wrapped up the sign, we put it in the corner of this office, and it just sat there and I looked at it. It's a two-man project. It's going to be hard. Just looked at it. That happened for about a week and a half. That was bad pastoring because we have community picnics going on. That's our sign for community picnics, right? I'm just being honest with you here. It's bad pastoring. So on Friday, at a meeting with Paul, we met here at the church, and then ran around town, did some stuff, and I was like, Paul, the guilt is too much. Need to put the sign back up. Put the sign up. And uh, I cut my finger in the process. I was cutting little zip ties, and my hand was behind it, and I went, whoop! And I went, oh, that's not good. Cut my finger. But the sign was up. There was peace in my soul. The sign was back up. There was joy in my heart. The problem was solved. Yesterday, we got a new mower. Randy Palmer's been helping lead us in that world, and uh, so thankful for our deacons and all the ways they serve us. But Randy's helps over our property, and uh, we've been fighting this electric mower for a while. So we finally were like, forget it. We're going back to polluting the earth and getting a gas mower. So we got a gas mower. We're not, we're not doing that, but we got a gas mower and Randy mowed. So Randy calls me yesterday. I'm like, oh, I missed a call from Randy. I called him back. He says, Matt, do you have a sledgehammer? Why do I need a sledgehammer? He goes, oh, the sign was in the way when I was mowing, so I pulled the sign up, and we need to put it back. <laughs> <laughs> so I responded to him with love and compassion, <laughs> gracious. <laughs> I was devastated. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't know. You pulled the sign up? <laughs> he doesn't know the saga of the sign. He does now, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This explains my response to you yesterday on the phone. So I'm devastated. I kind of dump out my devastation on him a little bit. He's like, well, if you want to come over and help. And I was like, I don't. I really don't. <laughs> but I, said, I sent him a text after because I felt bad about the way I talked to him on the phone. 
And I said, uh, no worries, thanks for mowing, we'll get it figured out tomorrow, because I still want to deal with it. And um, then he called other people. And uh, I pulled in this morning, he and Simeon fixed it, and it's better than how we left it. It was amazing. And my heart is back at peace. <laughs> that is one minute problem. Jesus, through the blood of his cross, is going to fix it all. We can't even grasp what it means when 2 Peter 3 says, according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. When it says in Revelation 21, behold, I am making all things new. But look at verse 21. This extends beyond the creation, beyond the world that God has made. It gets very personal. And you, the verse says, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Jesus has now reconciled. He's made peace in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, the one alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I've talked to some of you in the, in the past couple months who got to this place of realizing I am a sinner who needs rescued. And you came to Jesus and you know what he did? He rescued you. He made peace between you and God where there could be no peace without somebody to come. Jesus did that. You say he did that for me? He did that for you. But look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith. See, not everyone in the world is a child of God. The Bible actually says that left to ourselves, we're, ch we're children of Satan. We're children of evil. We're children who go our own way. We're like sheep, Isaiah 53 says. We're sinners. But God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Jesus came and died so that if you would put your trust in him, you could know your sins are forgiven and you have eternal life. You could know that your relationship with God is right, not because you could do anything to make it right, but because of Jesus, who came and lived and died for you. The Bible describes his offer of forgiveness as a gift. A gift's only yours if you take it. You must believe in him. You must turn from your sin. You must trust in him. And then he'll make peace for you. Don't you want that peace? Don't you want peace with God? You can't get it on your own. I can't get it on my own. I can't be a good enough pastor to get peace with God. I've broken his laws time and time and time again. I'm a sinner and he's holy. But in Jesus, look at this, verse 22. You can be holy and blameless and above reproach. You know those words just keep building on each other? They keep getting better and better because of what Jesus has done. So I have a question for you. What has Jesus failed to be or to do? There was a conversation that happened during plant camp. It was actually a text conversation with one of the interns. He was texting with a friend of his. And the friend was actually criticizing historic Christianity because it's all about Jesus. The friend was like, it just seems like everything you do is about Jesus. Isn't that kind of egotistical? Why? This is why. Because Jesus became a human because Jesus made everything, because Jesus started something, 
that we're a part of. And because Jesus can fix everything for you, and one day he will fix everything in this world. Why would you want to go your own way and try to make your own peace with God? You can't. And if you try to go that way on your own merits, on your own works, one day you will stand before God and you will take the punishment for your sin, even though Jesus offered to take it for you. That's sobering, isn't it? So how do we respond? Put your trust in Jesus. See that? If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, place your faith always in Jesus. Have your faith anchored in Jesus. Stable and steadfast have the idea of being grounded, of sitting down, being immovable, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And then anticipating his return, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Do you know what the next couple of uh, sections of Colossians are going to tell you? That when you have a big view of Jesus, when you understand how great he is, your faith can be firm even when life hurts and even when life is hard. Listen, life hurts sometimes. And following Jesus is hard sometimes. But if you look at verses 24 through 29, that's all that the Bible's talking about. You can stay with Jesus. If you turn over to chapter 2, it goes even further. It tells you that you can stay firm in your faith. Chapter 2, verse 7, established in the faith. Even when your faith is under attack. When other people are tell, trying to tell you that you're not smart enough, that you need some deeper spiritual knowledge than Jesus, when you get how great he is, you can stay firm in your faith. Settled. Even when people try to judge you, verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you about the way you live physically, right? Food and drink and holidays. Or when people try to disqualify you and tell you there's a deeper spirituality you need to experience, you can stay with Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus and keep it there. I wonder this morning, on a very simple level, have you ever put your trust in Jesus? Or is it still in yourself, or partially in yourself? Have you rejected Jesus and said, I'm not really interested in that, I want to go my own way and figure it out on my own? Have you ever put your trust in Jesus? And then I also want to ask you how often you have that same feeling of Peter. You got out of the boat, you put your faith in Jesus. But then what happened? Got stormy. I think most of us could say in the last couple years it's gotten stormy in some way, shape, or form. And guess what? That's just not COVID. That's all of life. Life is stormy and hard and uncertain and unpredictable. It's like walking on water. But with Jesus, when your eyes are on him and your faith is in him and you get how great he is, you can stay secure. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes together. I want to give you an opportunity to respond I know that can be intimidating sometimes, but we actually all ought to respond every time we hear from God's word. But I wonder for you this morning, if you would say, if I'm honest, Matt, I'm not sure that my faith is in Jesus, that I've ever put my trust in him. I've ever turned from my sin and asked him to be my savior. I've never called out to him. And I've been wrestling with that or thinking about it or maybe just sitting in here this morning, I'm thinking about it. I just have some more questions or maybe, maybe yeah, I'm ready to put my trust in Jesus, I just, I just love to talk to someone. I have some questions. 
We can make an appointment for later in the week. Any of the pastors or other people at church are available for that. But you would say, I'm at that place where I have questions about putting my faith in Jesus or I want to put my faith in Jesus. Would you just by lifting your hand, nobody's looking around, say, I have some questions about that. Or I'm, I'm interested in some way. I'd love to talk to someone further. Respond in that way. Okay, Christians, you know Jesus. You put your faith in him. What would you say, I've, I've needed to hear this this morning because I've gotten my eyes on some things, the wind and the waves, and my faith in Jesus has wavered. It's not, I don't know if I'm, I'm not leaving him, but I'm, I'm wrestling. It's been hard. And I just need this reminder this morning of how great Jesus is and that I need to keep my faith anchored to him. Would any of you raise your hand and say, that's me. That's where I am. I've needed this reminder. Okay, you put your hands down. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful. God, for your plans from ages past, we're thankful for your son who lived and died and rose again for us. We're thankful for your spirit who's at work. We do want to stand in awe of your greatness to wonder and let that become so vast in our lives that it pushes out the fears and the discouragements and the worries and the distractions of other things. Please, God, increase our faith. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.